Well, we are looking at Romans 12 in these weeks, and looking especially there at Paul's description of the love to which we are called as disciples of Jesus. If the great commandment, as Jesus taught it, is to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor as ourselves, what are the ways that we can know that we are obedient to that commandment? And more specifically, what are the signs that God is working out that transforming love in us, that the Spirit is growing that love in us? What are the the things that depict or give witness to that love actually taking root in our souls? And I think Paul gives us those indicators in this chapter of Scripture without any question what he gives us is a list of virtues and attitudes and actions that are depictions of that genuine love that integrated love that love that is the union of body and soul that love that is a manifestation of god's love at work within us first week we talked about how one of the signs of that love is the the act of showing up of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice Last week, it was the act of saying no, of of noticing and renouncing those things in this current age that are in conflict with God's way of love and saying no to those things. And today we want to look at really the first of four things that are descriptors of this love that are kind of interrelated and that build on each other. Really, all six of the things I'm talking about are interrelated and build on each other, but But humility and curiosity and empathy and intimacy are kind of a a progression that we'll be looking at over the next four weeks. And today it's humility. And I'm going to read Romans 12, 1 to 3, the first three verses, but focus primarily in my sermon today on humility on verse 3 and, and how humility is what both fosters and is a fruit of this genuine love that that God is growing in us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, bring us to that life-giving and liberating place of humility where we are not burdened to think about ourselves more highly than we ought to think but to entrust ourselves to you and so find the rest that we so dearly desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the the second church that I served, I was still in my 30s. In fact, I think I went to that church when I was about ready to turn 31 and uh, left when I was uh, 37. And in that church in Pasadena, the east end of Pasadena, about the same size as as Emmanuel is, 
One of the things that was good about being where I was in, in that particular setting was that our church was kind of in this no man's land of unincorporated Los Angeles County. We weren't really a part of Pasadena or Arcadia or any of the other small cities uh, around there. And we most definitely weren't a part of the one of the cities right next to us, which was San Marino. San Marino, if you know anything about San Marino, is one of the most affluent communities in Southern California. Uh, if you've ever been to the Huntington Library, it's located in San Marino. Henry Huntington was, you know, that, that key figure in the West and especially in Southern California that built the railroads, built the red car, built uh, the electric power generation unit that ran the red car. He was very wealthy and his estate is now a museum in San Marino. San Marino's a very affluent community and one of the things I was thankful for is that the, the associate pastor from San Marino came to me at one point shortly after I arrived in Pasadena and said, hey, we need some help. We do a lot of weddings here. If you ever saw the church at San Marino, you know why they did a lot of weddings there. There were probably a lot of Hollywood movies filmed in that sanctuary for weddings. It was a beautiful sanctuary in a very beautiful part of San Marino, and it was virtually a wedding chapel on the weekends. And they just said, we can't possibly do all of the weddings that come to us. Would you be sort of an adjunct pastor <laughs> to, in order to help us do weddings? And I said, great. And man, that helped us buy groceries. Uh, it was a good time uh, in, uh, in our lives for me to have that kind of side gig that was uh, related to what I was doing at, at my own church, but definitely doing it in a different place. But uh, that pastor in San Marino, we became friends. And at one point, I remember him telling me a story once about one of the dilemmas of serving a church in that kind of community, a very, very affluent community. And he told me the story of a, of a football game between the San Marino High School team and the Temple City team. Temple City was a community right next door to San Marino that was sort of a blue collar community. That's the weird thing about that part of Southern California is that you kind of know immediately when you've crossed into the new zip code that isn't defined by those areas of affluence, you, you see it and you know when you've left San Marino and when you've entered uh, Temple City. It's, but Temple City happened to win the football game that night. And uh, my friend, the associate pastor said, yeah, this is part of what makes it hard to serve here because one of the things that happened after that game is as the San Marino bus was leaving the Temple City Stadium's parking lot, a voice was heard from the bus yelling out, one of the students yelling out to a group of players from the Temple City team, and he yelled out this, yeah, you beat us tonight, but in 10 years you'll be working for us. <laughs> and I'm sure you can agree in hearing that statement that it is the very opposite of humility. It's rather arrogance. It is a kind of over-self-confidence, if you will, or overconfidence in a truth about the way that the world works. And we all have to acknowledge that the world works this way. And that is what was acknowledged in the voice of this player yelling from the bus, the San Marino player yelling from the bus, was, you'll be pressed into our mold one day. So enjoy what you've got tonight. The interesting thing about that word confidence, that word confidence that I used in respect to having confidence in a system that sort of sustains your power and your wealth. The interesting thing about that word confidence is when you break it down into its Latin cognates, to its 
two Latin words that compose the word confidence. You have the word con, which in Latin is with, and you have the word fide, confidence, fide, which is the word faith. With faith is what confidence means, according to its Latin cognates, at least. And, and when you look at that word in that way, it sort of begs a question. Faith in what? Or faith in who? Because it's possible to have faith in any number of things and to be faithful to any number of persons or things. But when you ask that question, confidence, faith in whom, faith in what, you can see that confidence can produce arrogance or humility. Depending on the answer to that question of who or what is your object of your faith. Is it a faith in structures, in institutions, in systems, in money that, that keep a certain order in place and you're confident that what you were born into you will always have and what everyone else was born into is what they will always have or have not? Or is it faith in God? Confidence. Faith, more specifically, faithfulness to a God who has chosen to remain faithful to us. Confidence in a system that maintains a hierarchy, that reinforces arrogance, or among some, or, or humiliation, the humiliation of others, or is it confidence in a relationship with a creator who created all of his creatures rich and poor, irrespective of race or geography or ethnicity or language, who created all of his creatures for the sole purpose of loving relationship with himself. And what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 is the, obviously the latter of these two forms of confidence, the confidence that literally nurtures us in humility and the humility that produces a confidence that is unlike any other kind of confidence. The source of this confidence is the mercy and grace of God. And the outward expression of this confidence is humility. If you look at this text, you can see that so clearly and, and most clearly in these kind of little throwaway phrases that Paul uses at the beginning of, of some of his descriptors in this passage. Because he says, first of all, I mean, his, his main humility text in our text for today is in verse 3 where he says, I urge you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. That's obviously a, a definition that's a pretty good definition of, of humility. But the source of that self-assessment is the mercy and grace of God. And, and that's where these little throwaway phrases or seemingly throwaway phrases that, that obviously set the foundation for the whole of this text. And the one is right there at the beginning. I urge you, parenthetically, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. Paul frames all of his teaching not simply as a command, you should be these things, 
and not merely as a set of rules that we need to follow that we kind of keep posted on our refrigerator to remember. But he frames all of these things as in a, the context of a description of what happens when we know ourselves to be received by God and to have received the gifts, therefore, of, of God's mercy and grace. And the texts that are the foundation on which these admonitions are based are, are like that first one that I just mentioned. I, I urge you by the mercies of God, I urge you, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. And then in verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to you. All of this admonition is based on a prior action not of my command to you or what I have written here, but a prior action of what God has done in me and what I understand to have happened when Jesus Christ literally pushed me down and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul is saying to us, I'm not just telling you what you should be. I'm not just setting up a list of virtues to which you must aspire or obtain or strive to adopt, I'm telling you what God has done and how this gracious and merciful love can actually grow you in love. And Paul's own story is a testimony to that. This arrogant, self-appointed protector of purity who was trying to make sure to keep the world's safe for that pure expression of Judaism. But he became the bondservant of all things of a crucified carpenter. It was arrogance transformed into humility that Paul experienced. It was contempt transformed into love. It was that realization that he had on the Damascus Road that the job of Redeemer had already been taken and he didn't need to take it. And all by mercy and grace. All by the steadfast love of God. And it made Paul a possessor of a new kind of confidence the confidence that is born of and also demonstrates humility. You know, true humility is not born of an enduring or indelible sense of shame. That is, we are bad and we'll never get over being bad, so you better be humble. That's not the humility that Paul's talking about. True humility is not expressed in a self-loathing or a self-deprecation. It's not really saying I am nothing. It's saying instead I know who I am and who God made me to be. True humility is born of confidence. The confidence that we're loved by a merciful and gracious God who's created us for relationship with himself and keeps pursuing us in spite of our repeated attempts to run away. and doesn't get offended by that. True humility is a realistic self-assessment. Yes, 
It is indeed based on the one hand on the horror we might have of acknowledging what havoc we might have produced if we had been left to ourselves. And on the other hand, it is gratitude for the transforming power of God's mercy and grace. True humility is born of being loved by the one who himself became humble, like Christo read to us this morning from Philippians 2, who laid aside his divine prerogative for our sakes, who came looking for us and who let our deepest pain pass through his heart in a kind of divine empathy that is unparalleled by anything we can know ourselves. So my friends, by that grace given to us, let us choose not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Free us to enter that space of self-knowledge where we know ourselves to be loved, where we know ourselves in life and in death to belong not to ourselves but to you. And help us to rest in that space. And so go forth into our world reflecting a kind of light that we would not otherwise have and to shine it boldly and to give of it freely because we know that you have given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.